So, uh, just as I get into this, I want you to know that I'm speaking to myself in this as well. You know, this is this is coming out of uh, my own wrestling with God, my own um, reading uh, around this, um, my own kind of seeking after what's going on in God's heart, and, and God has been speaking to me in this process. So as I say, yeah, I've been feeling quite restless and uh, just been asking God and he's, he's graciously challenging me to a higher level of intimacy with him. And so this is what this comes out of. And I'm still on that journey. I'm still working out what that looks like in my life. Um, so I don't want you to think that I'm standing here in judgment at all because I'm on this journey too and um, I've found it a challenge to me. And so I just want to also challenge you. Okay, so we're going to start by looking at a couple of the letters to the churches found in Revelation. So these letters were written after the disciple John had a vision of heaven. And it was Jesus that gave him these words. So it's actually Jesus speaking. So if you've got a a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, you will find that these letters to the churches are in red, even though this is after Jesus has ascended to heaven. In the vision, Jesus says to John, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So we're not going to be going into the details of all of the vision um, that John sees. That will definitely take at least a month to unpack. Um, So we're just going to be focusing on the message behind two of these letters. So the first letter is to the church in Ephesus. So Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 and it says... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we can see at the start of this letter that Jesus has a lot of good stuff to say about the Ephesian church. He says they're a hard-working and a persevering people. He says they've endured many hardships and they've come through the other side with their faith intact. So they do have this faith in Jesus. They do believe in him and they do live for him. But what is it that they're getting wrong? Verse 4 tells us, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So they've lost sight of Jesus. They've lost sight of their first love. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes to this same Ephesian church and he commends them for their great love for God and for people. But this Ephesian church is a generation later and many of the founders of that church have died. And so this is a new generation and this new generation have lost their passion and their zeal for God. They're still doing everything that they should be doing in terms of 
um, endurance and perseverance, but they've lost sight of the why. They've lost sight of their first love. They're a busy church. They're serving in their community and looking after each other well, but they're acting out of the wrong motives. They're an enthusiastic church, and everything looks great from the outside, but they've lost their enthusiasm for God. They've lost their passion. They're just going through the motions and getting on with what they should be doing, but they've lost sight of why they're doing it. You know, when we first come to faith and we first get that revelation of God's love, we we feel so excited, don't we? We're so enthusiastic. We just want to shout about it. We want to tell everybody. And then as we move on in our relationship with God, we have a, a deeper knowledge of him and a deeper understanding, but we tend to lose that enthusiasm and that passion. Sadly, you can usually tell how long someone has been a Christian from how enthusiastic they are about God. But we need to grow and develop in the knowledge, but also not allow that passion to die, not allow that enthusiasm to go. Jesus takes this very seriously when he says in verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So in this case, the lampstand actually represented the church. So Jesus is saying that effectively he would remove the church. He was saying that the church would stop giving out light, will stop being effective in their community. And Jesus is warning them that that light will eventually go out if they serve him without loving him. Karl Martin is a, a pastor and author and he challenges us in this and he says, We might read the Bible aiming to get things right, but to us it's not living or active or doing anything in our lives. We might do our best to learn all about the Holy Spirit, but still we don't allow his life to overflow, to bubble up and over. We might do life group without doing real life together. We might agree to be leaders, but too often we find the experience dry or crusty. We go through the motions and we share our true feelings with no one because they're all expecting deep spiritual insight from us. We're left thinking there must be more than this. We treat Jesus respectfully, But on those terms, we might never enter into all that God has for us. So what Karl Martin is describing here is a Christian lifestyle that is lived without that deepening relationship with God. Of course, all the things that he mentions, like reading the Bible, going to life group, and so on, are really good things. But if we're just doing those things as tick box exercises, then we've lost sight of why we're doing it. We're not doing it out of a love for God, and we've got it all backwards. We need to be first and foremost loving God. So this letter to the church in Ephesus is a clear message that we must be motivated by our love for God. Never lose sight of that. So the second letter that I'd like us to look at is written to the church in Laodicea. And this is found in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And it says... And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So unlike the church in Ephesus, Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say to the church in Laodicea. He just jumps, jumps straight in with it. You are not hot and you're not cold. And he's saying here that this, this church has a serious apathy problem. They've got no emotion towards God. They're not fired up, but neither are they doing anything about that. They're just lukewarm. They're sailing along in life with a total indifference. So Laodicea was the richest of the seven churches, and so it was really self-sufficient. They had a lot to offer in terms of goods for sale, which is why Jesus talks in this way to them. It gave them a comfortable lifestyle. But the only problem was that the city had a really naff water supply. So it came from hot springs, and it came through, and as it reached Laodicea, it was only lukewarm, and then as it carried on to the next place, it was cold. So the towns either side of it, the cities either side, had either really nice hot water or refreshingly cold water. But this, just where it was geographically, it had lukewarm water, which was distasteful and not nice at all. It wasn't any use to them. So again, Jesus is using this local knowledge, as he often does in parables, to show them the error of their ways. And he even said that they were so distasteful that he would spit them out. The problem was that the church didn't take a stand on anything. They were so indifferent, and this had led to them becoming lazy. They weren't doing anything for the church or the community, but they were just sitting in their lives of comfort. They were self-sufficient and hard-hearted, and they had this reliance on material possessions. They saw themselves as rich, and they celebrated these things, and they thought that things were going well for them. But Jesus challenges them to reliance on him instead. So again, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus is telling them here that they're not going to be rich unless they trade their riches and possessions for a deeper level of intimacy with him. He's using this local knowledge to make a point because he picks up on gold and garments and eye salve, which are all the things that they really prided themselves on creating and selling. But Jesus wants them. He just wants them. And he says that he will discipline this lukewarm church if they don't turn from their indifference. He says, I will spit you out. And that might come across to us as a bit harsh, but Jesus' purpose in discipline is not to punish us or to hurt us, but it's just to bring us back into line, into relationship with him. God might discipline us to shake up our uncaring attitudes, to break our hearts for what breaks his. 
And the end goal is that deeper level of intimacy with him. And again, Karl Martin says, the Laodiceans think that they are rich because they are, things are going well for them. They're seeing growth. They have certain things. They think these things are good. But Jesus tells them they're, they are wretched, pitiful, sorry, wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. And he's saying, I want you to know me. Here I am right here. Let me in. God does not make us love him. He wants us to choose intimacy in him. And then we have this really well-known verse, don't we, in Revelation 3, verse 20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So this was directed at this church in Laodicea who felt self-satisfied. Jesus was knocking on the door of their hearts. But they were so busy enjoying the pleasures of the world that they didn't notice. They were all wrapped up in money, in security, material possessions, which can be dangerous if that becomes our focus rather than a relationship with God. This temporary satisfaction, it was making them apathetic and indifferent to God. And God offers us a lasting satisfaction, which doesn't compare. Jesus wants to have that intimacy with us. He wants us to open up to him. And he's so patient and persistent in trying to get through to us. He gently knocks on the door of our hearts. He's not breaking and entering. He's gently knocking, waiting for us to respond to him. So we mustn't lose our first love. And we mustn't succumb to indifference. So I'm currently reading um, a book which has really helped kind of stir me up a bit. And um, the lovely Jess lent it to me. And it's called Red Moon Rising by Pete Grieg. And he's the, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement. So you may have heard of him or read the book. And this book really describes the journey that he went on to begin this incredible movement, which from the sounds of it happened quite by accident. Um, but in, just in him taking small steps in following God has resulted in this, in this big 24-7 prayer movement. And so in this book, he talks about intimacy with God as being a long obedience in the same direction, which I really like that. And it says that we need, he says that we need to be strong and steady in following God and seeking him. But he thinks that we struggle with this because we live in a society where instant gratification is the norm. We just want immediate access to everything. And this has become a reality in many situations, hasn't it? We can even decide that we want something. We can go on Amazon and we can even have it delivered the same day in some instances. That's how instant everything is for us. And information as well. We have information so readily available to us that we forget what it's like to wait for an answer. You know, when I was a kid and I had a, an obscure question that my parents didn't know the answer to, that was it. We didn't know the answer unless they took me to a library to find out the answer or if I found someone else to ask who happened to know the answer. That was it. I, I never really found out the answer because by the time I found someone to ask, I'd probably forgotten and moved on to something else. But now when my kids me ask, ask me random things like a question I've actually had this week is why is the sky blue? I'm like, so I said to Caleb, well, I think it just reflects off the sea, doesn't it? And he's like, yeah, but the sea's not blue either. I'm like, I don't know, Caleb, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, okay, right, let's get my phone out. Let's get on Google. And that gave him a much more scientific answer that he was looking for, which is way beyond me. Um, 
or, you know, random things like how many legs does a centipede actually have? Well, I, you know, I can take my phone out of my pocket, I can Google it, or, you know, I can even, I can have an answer on my watch in seconds. Hey Siri, how many legs does a centipede have? Here's an answer from wikipedia.org. Despite the name, no centipede has exactly 100 pairs of legs. Number of legs ranges from 15 pairs to 191 pairs, always an odd number. There you go. So if you didn't learn anything about intimacy with God, you now know something about centipedes. So there we go. But isn't that amazing? That information is just so readily available to us all the time that I can wear it on my wrist. I can have it in my back pocket. I've got just all this um, information readily available to me. So because we're so accustomed to this, and this is kind of the life that we live now, we can be really guilty of expecting the same of God. We ask him a question and we want an immediate answer and we're losing the art of waiting. The word selah in the Bible is used 71 times in the book of Psalms alone. And even though interpreters are not 100% sure what it means, they believe that it's a musical term that instructs a pause, a breath, a moment to reflect on what's just happened and then to prepare for what is about to come. So God is asking us to have seller moments. He doesn't provide answers for us instantly. John mentioned last week that God has expectations of us. God wants to bless us, but we must also show our faithfulness to him. And this doesn't impact on God's love for us. God's love is unconditional. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us more, and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. But when it comes to living out the life that God has for us and receiving God's blessings, he's looking for a deep, intimate relationship with us. Sela demands that we stop, fall silent, and wait for God. And in the busyness of life, we're not really very good at doing that. Pete Grieg, in this book, talks about a cycle of blessing, which he suggests is what happens during a season of Sela. We should have a a little slide with a cycle on, if you can put that up for us. Hopefully. So it begins with, oh, there we go, perfect. So it begins with this numb heart. So, you know, we've, we've been a Christian for a little while, and over time, we go through some bad experiences that wear us down. And we gradually take our focus off God as our first love, like the church in Ephesus did. And we might turn to things that are not good for us. We might start to rely on these um, other things that try and numb the pain, maybe, like the church in Laodicea. We become indifferent. We lose passion for God. And sometimes we don't even realize that we've got to this point until God does something to remind us. Because God cares so much about us that he's not going to leave us in this first stage. He begins to stir us up. And it might feel like restlessness, which is certainly how I've been experiencing it. Or it might be like a troubled spirit. And you might not be able to put words to it. But God does this to show us our current state and makes us confront the reality of where we are. And he doesn't want to leave us there. Then this second phase, we move into wrestling once, once we're aware that there's kind of an issue, then we start wrestling with ourselves. We experience this inner turmoil, and we try to begin to make sense of it. 
So we might try and study scripture, we might start reading helpful books, we might find a creative outlet, we might draw or write or write songs, sing. We might try and pray, but we maybe find it a bit difficult. We can't really put into words how we feel or what we want to express to God. But God is listening and he's watching and he's getting excited as we gradually move from that indifference closer to him. Then the third one is waiting. So it might take some time, possibly even years, but God will give you words for the things that are troubling your heart. This is where we start to feel peace and we're able to ask God our questions. We won't get the answers straight away, but we can put words to our questions and we begin to sense his presence. We're no longer wrestling with ourselves, but we're wrestling with God. We're seeking answers from him. We're asking God our questions and we're waiting for him to respond in his time. We're becoming reliant on him again instead of filling that void with other things. And then the fourth part of this cycle is blessing. And this is where God really steps in. The one who spoke into our numb hearts, the one who watched us wrestle with ourselves and then begin to turn back to him and wait. He gently gives us the questions and he watches us as we learn to pray. And this blessing is not about what God can do for us. We're not receiving blessing in terms of material things, but rather this blessing is that we get to be in the very presence of God. It's where we're changed. It's where we get to see what's on God's heart. It's where we get to hear his voice again. Our relationship with him is restored. We can learn the very mind of God. We can see what he wants to say and speak into a situation or a person. And there really is no greater blessing than that. So in his book, um, Pete shares a, a journal entry from a season of cellar that God was taking him through. And I'm just going to read that to you now. So he says, that night was incredibly significant. I realized that I'd come to a point of desperation and that I could honestly say my greatest desire in life is to know that God is with me. I set my faith towards this great goal. The truth of the matter is that I'd rather be unhappy and know that God is with me than be happy, comfortable and unsure of God's presence. I remember times gone by of incredible fulfillment and others of great unhappiness. But the single thread that holds them together is that I knew that God was with me at the heart of it all. He was caught up in my decision-making on a daily basis, and I felt truly alive. Right now, by contrast, I am technically happy, but there is this underlying sense of dullness. Would I actually notice if God died tomorrow? I just spent a while in the mists of dawn on the trundle, which is a local hill, looking for God. Crying, trying to listen, being honest in a way that has to whisper. Later, my wife asked me what God had said to me, and I replied, nothing. God said nothing, but that's okay, because I'm starting to wrestle for his presence again, and I'm prepared to wait. I feel like God is waiting to see if I am waiting. If he just flooded in with answers and guidance right now, I would not have changed. I would not have learned to wait and trust without the answers and without a roadmap for the future. So I'm kind of glad that God was silent, because I actually want to wait. I want to prove my mettle to God. 
I don't necessarily want ease and instant anything anymore. I want to be different before I do anything different. So I'm waiting for God, and God is waiting for me to see if I'm really waiting for him, and not just wanting things from him. And as God and I eyeball each other in this way, I feel good. I feel alive and engaged with what matters, and I'm going to win this waiting game with God. It really is an excellent book. I really suggest that you uh, get it. As Christians, we we use this phrase, waiting on God, and perhaps it doesn't really do us any favours, because if Pete Griggs experiences anything to go by, there is absolutely nothing passive about his waiting on God. Waiting on God is active. It's not the same as waiting for a bus. We're not just sitting there at the bus stop of life, waiting for God to show up, you know? Waiting is seeking, and seeking requires action. Looking for something is active. You might have heard the phrase, a man scan, which is used to describe the way that men look for something, as in they don't really look for things properly. So as you can imagine, this happens a lot in my house, living with three males. So as the only female, I have to know where everything is in the whole house. And I tell you, it takes a lot of my brain space, but um, I manage So, like, for example, Mummy, have you seen my wellies? I've looked everywhere for them. Yes, they're in the understairs cupboard. They're in a blue plastic bag. Just open the door. They'll be right there. No, no, Mummy, they're not there. I can't find them. No, honestly, that's where they are. They're in a blue plastic bag. You might have to open the bag to look for the wellies. You might, you know, open the door, check. Um, No, Mummy, I've had a really good look. They're definitely not there. Are you sure you have looked? Yes, Mummy, definitely Okay, but if I come down there and I open that door and they are there, you are in for it, kid. I open the cupboard door, blue plastic bag, open it, wellies, and such is my life. (laughs) And in the same way, we need to be active when we're looking for something. It's no good just having a man scan. You can't just kind of be seeking God with a half-hearted attitude. We need to be actively seeking God. Waiting on God is seeking him, and seeking requires action. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So we seek God for that deeper intimacy with him. When we seek him, we will find him. You know, we often say things like, we want to see God move. We want to see breakthrough. We want to see the church grow. We, see all these th- we say all these things. But our motive for seeking God should not be about these things. It should be about intimacy with him first. How serious are we about seeing answers to these questions? If we're that serious, we would seek intimacy with him first. I think perhaps my favorite verse in the Bible is Matthew six thirty-three. It's definitely up there in the top five anyway, and I've, I've had it as a kind of a motto for life. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The point being that we don't need to go chasing after financial gain or careers or material possessions or even relationships. But if we seek God first and seek that intimate relationship with him, then first of all, we'll become satisfied where we are and with what we've got and then second of all we'll be blessed with the things that God knows we need
Do you know, there have been so many times in our marriage that we've looked at our income and then looked at our outgoings and thought, this shouldn't be working. We shouldn't have this amazing house. We shouldn't have this lovely car to drive. We shouldn't be a two-car family. How is this working? And there have been some months even where we shouldn't have had food on the table. But God provides for us again and again as we choose intimacy with him over anything else. And I'm not saying that's easy. That is a hard choice to make. And sometimes we make that choice with a prayer of help me in my unbelief. Because sometimes it's hard. But it is a choice that all of us can make. We don't go to God for the blessings. We go to God for a relationship. And then blessings happen as a byproduct of that relationship. So we're a week into our 21 days of prayer and fasting and I've had a few conversations with people about how that's going but I wonder how we're all getting on with that. I wonder how each one of us is showing that we're serious about that intimacy with him. Like have we left space for God to speak into our hearts? How much wrestling have we done? Have we had any cellar moments where we've carved out time to just be quiet with God? Or have we been praying on the run? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong at all with firing prayers up to God throughout the day. Absolutely not. And I think God loves to hear from us at any moment, at any time of day. But I also think that it's really important that we carve out this time and intentionally create space to seek God and hear his voice. And that's why we put on prayer meetings through this time. And it's why we're having an encounter night on the the 31st. These meetings provide space for us to connect with God and with each other, but mostly with God without that distraction. It gives us those, those moments. To be brutally honest, the prayer meetings last week were not very well attended at all. If, uh, if you don't include the people that were leading the meetings, six people from the church went to the prayer meetings last week. I think we can do better. I think that there's something needs to be stirred up within us to have that hunger for God where nothing else matters and we get to those meetings. Or maybe we've been fasting something, which also is great, but have you questioned why you're doing that? Are you doing it because we're doing it as a church or are you doing it to adjust the posture of your heart towards God? I love this quote from Lisa Bevere. She says, Your focus or motive on a fast will be your reward. If God isn't the centre, it will just be reduced to merely a time of denial. God has to be the centre if you want God to be your reward. But God sees our hearts and he knows if it's intimacy with him that we're chasing after. But we are to seek first the kingdom. Another quote from Karl Martin says, Too often we have opted for religion instead of intimacy. We choose it because it allows us to keep God at a distance and treat him respectfully. But this is a very empty thing. Embrace religion and God becomes a formula. We go to church and we sing songs and we do wrong things and we ask for forgiveness. God erases our sin. We share our faith because someone once told us it was the right thing to do. We're very respectful but there is no intimacy. God wants you, just you, just you and him, and the real you and him. He can handle it. 
So are we just going through rituals and religion to make ourselves feel better? Deeper intimacy with God can sometimes feel a bit scary because it means that we have to be our real, authentic selves. And somehow we believe that we can pull the wool over God's eyes sometimes, don't we? It can be a scary prospect to allow God in to deeply move and change us because then we have to act on it. We have to do something about it. But we can all too easily get comfortable like the church in Laodicea and we can feel self-satisfied or we can go through the motions but lose sight of our first love like the church in Ephesus. But we give ourselves a pat on the back because we're doing all the things that we should be doing. But it's an empty existence when God has so much more for us. We need to move past the fear of the process of all that's involved in a season of cellar. And we need to allow God into our hearts and minds. We need to come humbly before him and allow him to change us. This last week I've been reading the book of Daniel um, and, and I've just been completely inspired by his life, his boldness, his faithfulness. And Daniel chapter 6 really challenges our attitude to prayer and intimacy with God. In verse 3 we see that Daniel became distinguished because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And it sounds like when the, high, the other high officials heard this that they became jealous of Daniel and the special attention that he was receiving from the king. So they tried to find a way to get rid of him. They searched for something that they could hold against Daniel, but they couldn't find anything. In verse 5, we read, These men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they knew that Daniel's faith was important to him, and they were willing to use that against him to get rid of him. So they made a plan with the king and they got the king to sign a decree that anybody who worships, everybody should worship and pray to the king and anybody who doesn't would be thrown into a den of lions. And this probably played a bit on the king's ego, so he was probably quite happy to go along with this. He liked the sound of everybody worshipping him, so he agreed. But then I love what it says in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He shut the windows, locked the door and prayed secretly and really quietly so no one could hear or see him. No, wait, it doesn't say that at all, does it? I'm just checking you're with me and awake. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he knew it had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to his God as he had done previously. Daniel knew that he could be thrown into a den of lions. He'd not yet been taught in Sunday school the end of the story and that he would survive. To him, it was a very real threat of punishment of death. But he was courageous enough to carry on doing what he had always done by praying where he could be seen and heard. And spoiler alert, Daniel did get thrown into the den of lions and he survived. God closed the mouths of the lions. Daniel wasn't at all ashamed of his relationship with God and he wasn't scared at all either. His circumstances didn't matter to him. He just carried on seeking God as he always had done. He wasn't shaken because that intimacy with God 
mattered more to him than a death sentence. Daniel showed true humility. Humility is recognizing that all good and perfect gifts, talents, successes come from God. Daniel wasn't just a person of prayer, but he was a man of true humility before God. You can see the hunger that he has for that deep relationship with God, that nothing else matters. And he wasn't asking God for anything either. He was simply and humbly on his knees, giving thanks to his God. I'm always amazed by how God confirms what I'm speaking on. And I cannot tell you how many verses and quotes and all kinds of things have popped up for me this week about seeking God, which has just been amazing. I'm just going to share two of them with you. So 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 to 16 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So this goes back to that journal entry that I read from Pete Grieg. God is waiting for us to wait on him. He's waiting for us to become a humble people, to pray, to seek him with everything we've got. He's ready for action and he wants to break into our lives. He wants to break into our families, this church, our workplaces, our community. But God needs us to be ready too. He's waiting for us to wait on him. And then just as we come to a close, the second one that I want to share with you is Hosea 10, the second part of verse 12. Um, and as I was writing this, I had a real stirring in my spirit and I real believe that, really believe that this is a word for this church for this year. So the second half says, Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. So fallow is a, a farming term which means ploughed and harrowed, but left for a period without being sown in order to restore its fertility. So another version says, plough up the hard ground of your hearts, for now is the time to seek the Lord. This is a plea for us to break up our hard hearts. It's this waiting on God thing again. It's active, but also still. It requires work because the ground needs breaking up, but we're not rushing into planting anything yet. We're preparing for what is ahead, but we're not yet doing anything about it. We're just simply seeking God, getting closer to him, wrestling with him, being slowly restored back to him so that we can be a fertile land again. And it's my prayer that each one of us would have a season of cellar, that we would work through and wrestle with our restlessness and see what God is doing in it that we would allow God to break in, to prepare our hearts, to restore our hearts, ready for God to plant again. I believe that this is a year of restoration and preparation for the big things that are coming next. But in order for any of that to happen, we have to seek God, for it is time to seek the Lord, now. The time is now to wait on him, to strive for that deeper intimacy with him above everything. It starts now. 
Lord God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us more and nothing we can do to make you love us less. And God, I pray for each person here that they would have a deeper revelation of your love for them. And God, may we hunger after you. May we long for that deeper intimacy with you. May we seek you with everything we've got. Thank you, God, for your patience with us. Thank you that you allow us just to sit at your feet, in your presence, where we are known and loved. And God, I pray now that you would humble our hearts and give us ears to hear you. Amen.